Hello and welcome to another episode of Video Game Logic. Today's episode was recorded on January the 24th, 2023. I'm your host, gaming psychologist, and with me, as always, for the third time in a row. I fiend rage. On today's show, we will, of course, be discussing some games that we play as we attempt to return to, air quotes, normal for our show. Ubisoft. Yeah, not gonna hold up. Yeah, not for long. Ubisoft delays Skull and Bones again, cancels three games as Mario plus Rabbids and Just Dance disappoint them. We're going to talk about the Wizards of the Coast debacle with its update of its open game license. Stadia leaves players a PC controller gift before bowing out. European Parliament votes to take action against loot boxes, gaming addiction, gold farming, and more. Microsoft changes to Xbox consoles leave Republicans outraged. And in our community corner, Hall Effect Stick Upgrade Kit will solve the Joy-Con drift, and soldiers use Metal Gear Solid Tactic to defeat military robot. Timestamps will be in the show notes following their respective topics. Hello, Rage. Hello. How are you? I'm alright. Uh, feels like we just recorded recently. Yeah, almost like we've recorded three episodes in the span of a week. Weird. And- yeah, it's very strange, but, you know, uh, at time of recording, it is, of course, a Tuesday. We recorded part one of the VGL Awards last a week. Last a week? Did I become a weird Italian? Uh, we recorded part well, well, two. You sound more like Mario than Chris Pratt. Ooh, thank you, thank you. We recorded uh, part two on Sunday, and that should be out, what did you say, tomorrow? Yeah, I'm going to post it tomorrow, because got it... Monday, when my power was out, and I had shit to do today. Yeah, that is, of so, course, tomorrow from time of, of recording, not from time of posting this yeah. episode. Yeah, the uh, the part two will be out before the, you're hearing this. If you're hearing this before part two, either I fucked up or you fucked up. Yeah, something went wrong along the way, but yeah. I am uh, looking forward to actually talking about some games and some news stuff. I mean, I like the award show and, you know, didn't like hate that process. Enjoyed Game Club, didn't hate that process, but am happy to do a, a non-Game Club normal episode. So, Speaking of which, should we jump right into it? Yeah, let's jump right in. Since I have two games, do you want me to go first? Uh, you can. Yes, foreshadowing, uh, with an immediate payoff, I have two games to talk about. Now, I played many, many, many games since the last time we've recorded. Between the holidays, a couple things I got on the Steam sale, um, some free giveaway games that Epic and others did. Like, I've I've got a pretty big list, but uh, as always, after this time of year, meter it out a little bit. So, the first game I want to talk about is going to be real quick, um... It is a game by the name of Hammerhelm. I purchased this on Steam during the sale, uh, the winter sale, for about $3. Um, It is an indie game. Uh, It looks like a one-man operation. Um, And unfortunately, this is a game where that shows. The idea is pretty solid. Um, You play a dwarf. Um, Dwarven civilization is in decline. 
and you recognize that while the older folks uh, in the dwarven colony and society are trying to ignore their problems by literally burying their hands and heads in the dirt. Gee, and this seems like a you know analogy, right? Uh, and you um, recognize the problems, realize that you're going to have to leave and build your own community. You recruit a few with dwarven with blackjack and hookers, and you recor- recruit a few followers to go and start this new community on an island, um, supposedly a uh, hundred or so miles away from the dwarven city you start from. Um, and it's a... It's, uh, I was going to say survival crafting. There's no survival elements. It is more of a um, crafting, exploration, light town management game, whether you play as the leader of this dwarven town, you are initially the one who's gathering all of the resources and doing the exploration in order to build what you need, um, farms, uh, crafting stations and structures, housing for your dwarven populace, and you watch your town grow over time um, in service of that story of the decline of dwarven civilization. There are in quite a few missions, some of them more involved, some of them less. Initially, they all start out as sort of generic RPG fetch quests, you know, go to X, kill Y, uh, bring back Z. Um, But they do open up a little bit more and get a little bit more freedom. There are some quests that involve you making sure that you manage and balance your city and the denizens correctly so that you have the right production of goods or the right stats amongst your people, that kind of thing. Um, There are a lot of really good ideas here. There's a good basis of a game but it needs a lot more time in the oven the gameplay mechanics are rough a lot of the game focuses on combat and the combat system is a mess um there's no clear uh way to tell if you're going to make contact with the enemy until after you start swinging in which case you might wind up taking unavoidable damage if you're even half an inch off of your target I, in either direction, you're too close to it, you're too far away from it, you do not make contact, um, there's not an effective lock-on or targeting system, so you often find yourself swinging wildly. And for straight-up melee combat, you can kind of get around this, you kind of learn where you need to be standing, but there are, of course, special abilities that you unlock, um, some what I think is supposed to be magic, it's kind of hard to tell, honestly, if it's just magic or kind of abstracted special abilities that you get but you get these abilities and powers and with no effective lock-on system you're just kind of flinging a spell so to speak and and hoping for the best you're you're spraying and praying um there's like i said there's a lot of unavoidable damage despite the fact that you have a a shield to block and a dodge roll neither of them seem to be effective or if they are the system for making them work is so kind of obfuscated and difficult to get working properly, I could never reliably dodge incoming damage. Um, you do not heal over time. You have to, to find or, or buy or craft healing items. It's, it's just really a mess, kind of a discombobulated mess. The town management aspect sounds extremely important to the overall progression of the game, but the way that it's implemented in practice, most of the time you're babysitting a couple of of key stat blocks for your town, 
and then every once in a while you need to ramp something up in order to meet a mission objective and then you can kind of ignore it again so i mean graphically it looks bad um i have always maintained that graphics do not make a game classic you know uh well not class i guess you could say class i don't know dwarf dwarf fortress excellent game poor graphics until you know more recently um many many excellent games have bad or subpar graphics or perhaps even an art style that's a bit minimalist that is not flashy or shiny so good graphics don't make a game better bad graphics don't make a game worse but when a game is kind of already a mess messy graphics i think add to that kind of cheapness that messy design yeah the messy design the ui is also a mess i mean it honestly looks like something from the late 90s yeah Overall, I mean, I, I bought into the idea of it. It seemed like an interesting idea, an interesting premise, and it is. But it so far is poorly executed um, and is difficult to play and enjoy. It's still under active development. I hope that this developer um, makes progress on it, continues to actually improve the gameplay aspects of it, the uh, user interface. Um, give it much more clear and understandable controls and feedback, especially if you're going to make combat such a massive part of the game. If you cut back on the amount of combat that's in it and focus more on city building aspects or some type of town management stuff, I think that that would be okay because it would feel more like the combat was kind of an add-on. Um, but as it is, it feels feels like the combat is meant to be somewhere between 50 and uh, you know half to two-thirds of the gameplay. And it's not a good half to two thirds of it. So, you know, I, I'm I might if it continues to be an active development, I'll check back in on it in maybe a year or so and see where it's at. But for now, I think that this is a pass. Oh, my turn. Your turn. So, I yet another factory game. Shapes or shapes Z, Z or shapes Z. This is. Basically, take Factorio, remove the kind of the overarching threat of aliens, and kind of make it more chill yet more addictive. So, uh, Shapes is all about building shapes. And it starts off very simple mine said shape, put it into hub. All right. Then it starts to slowly add. It's complexity. Cut up a shape. Rotate the shape. Stack one shape onto another shape. Paint the shapes. Paint the shapes, then stack the shapes. And it's just that slow build-up of having to push out further and further and move things into the hub that I found very satisfying. It's not a very... I don't want to say it's not a very difficult game because it's one of those that... It doesn't punish you for failing, alright? Or having a bad design. Because there's no essentially resource generation or management. So we're like, you know, uh, if you want to just play around with a design in like Factorio to give a kind of a good uh, analogy for this. You have to have the uh, materials, you have to uh, move around the world, you have to deal with the, you know, the, the possible threats uh, to the uh, in the environment, 
And this, it's just, you know, kind of just do your thing and uh, have at it. If it doesn't work, well, you do get an achievement for getting a, a shape that you're not being asked for, so there's that, but there's no real punishment for it. But it's also not an idle game. It's all about building factories. It doesn't feel like the proper term for it, but it's about as close as you're going to get. Uh, or, you know, like a group of factories. And moving shapes into your central hub. And as you level up uh, your hub, it asks for more complex shapes and bigger shapes. But you also want to leave the previous uh, stuff going. Because that also fuels your research. So, like, uh, your research is split into four or five categories. And it's like painting, cutting, uh, rotating is one category. Extraction is another category. Transportation, which is your belt, is another category. And once you uh, move enough shapes into the hub that it fills up the requirement for it, you get to research uh, stuff that's better and uh, that it, you need even more of it. So like I said, it also is kind of that moment of, oh, well, I need to leave this going and you know integrate my new design with the old design or maybe eventually tear that down, uh, have that integrated somewhere you know far away and feed into like a master uh, bus that's uh, moving stuff in. Or, okay, now uh, my belts are upgraded. What can I do with this? Uh, or, you know, what does this upgrade do to my overarching design? And that doesn't even get into the wiring aspect, which I haven't even unlocked yet. I still need to go back and play that. Uh, or play the game enough to get to that point. I'm almost there. But it's all, all hands on deck for Game Club this week. So I haven't really touched this game in a while. Right. Uh, to be able to finish that uh, section off. But there's it, it's that chill it's a chill axe uh, factorio you know what I mean and yeah it a, and it has a lot of well okay well I'll I, I'll put down the game I just need to do this one last thing or you know. and there's also the you know uh, doing your own thing as well where you know okay well uh, I know that I'll need uh, all these different paints eventually. How can I uh, do that efficiently, you know? Uh, and uh, do I want to try to build a, like, a centralized paint uh, distribution system? Do I want to uh, do it all haddock? I think the world is procedurally generated, you know, on the uh, initial playthrough. But I could be mistaken on that. Uh, but, you know, the further you go out, the more odd stuff is. So, like, close to the uh, hub is... Like squares, circles. Uh, but as you move further out, you know, you have like uh, spiky uh, 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 shapes. You have a square with like a, a, a quadrant that's a circle. Uh, and you can use those to mix and match and recombine them into other shapes uh, to fuel the overarching machine. You know? Yeah. Uh, and and I know it's on that feeling all too well. Yeah. It is on sale and very much worth the yeah four bucks. Is Shapes on Game Pass or has it been on Game Pass? I don't think it's ever been a Game Pass. Okay, 
I mean, there's a lot of games in this genre now, ever since, like, Factorio's really split it open. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's it's very possible. I've just seen a game that looks like it, or, you know, uh, enough there's like a, there's it. There's a free version of Shapes called Shapes.io. Maybe that's what I've seen. Yay, Shapes. Yeah, I'm just, uh, it looks like there's, like, more stuff. Uh, the basic game is essentially the same. So if you want to get a feel for the game, you can go check out shapes.io. But once you uh, get to a certain point, uh, you kind of hit a wall, and that's where the paid uh, version of it comes in, where uh, yeah, there's more stuff, there's more buildings, there's wiring, which allows you to make the factory smart. There's body support. Uh, So, yeah, there's... uh, a lot to do. And yeah. if you have the game, you can actually play on their website uh, at will. So there's also that. So you Yeah, get- this, this does look like a game that would run on a potato. Yeah. Which is not a bad thing. It's got a, a very minimalist art style for what it is that it's doing, and I, I appreciate that. Yeah, and there's also a puzzle mode, which I haven't really tackled yet. It looks like it's uh, instead of the you know, ever-ending void you know, where they put John Oliver. <laughs> oh, I remember uh, that bit. Uh, it's a very enclosed area, and you have to try to figure out how to do a thing in a very tight spot and do it efficiently. So... Uh, if you want to have the puzzle aspect, there is the puzzle DLC for a whole two dollars. Seems very affordable, especially for a game that is enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And they also have I, I, I got a second game that's in this uh, like vein of uh, only instead of shapes, it's numbers. And it's adding, dividing, multiplying to get different numbers. I, I need to play it and see how it compares now. I need to play, because I have this game, I need to play Willamont's Warehouse. I have no idea what that is. It's about sorting a warehouse, mm-hmm. and I have heard things about it that make me feel like it's kind of like this, in terms of like, oh, you're going through a warehouse, and you're sorting stuff, and you use conveyor belts, and, you know, etc. But... Oh, uh, looking at it, sort of, but not really, or at least uh, from the screenshots. Yeah, I've heard a lot of stuff about this game, I haven't played it. It was given away for free on the Epic Store at one point, so mm-hmm. that's how I have it. Anyways, not to steal away from, from your yeah, game, but like... Uh, no, no problem. I mean, I interrupt you enough, so... That's that's true, you do. It's alright. Hey, you're it. supposed to say no, you totally don't. No, you absolutely do, but it's okay, I love you. It's you part of our right. dynamic. Uh, but anyway, yeah. Uh, if you're curious about the game at all, go check it out, the free version over at Shapes.io. So, yeah. Nice. Okay. Well, my other game, which I think I'll talk about for longer, uh, is Sword Art Online Fatal Bullet. So, I have talked about this before. I'm a pretty big fan of the Sword Art Online universe. Um, When I got back into watching anime in the early 2010s, it was one of the first series I watched. Um, And it's always stuck with me as being sort of the definition of, of video game logic um, in, and how that 
how that yes and how that the games play out and the characters play out and the situations kind of evolve um because especially the first season it's all like oh yeah it's cool gamer knowledge that i have that i've brought into this world um and i i have praised it for other reasons too um while not perfect it actually has you know main characters that have realistic feeling romantic relationships it does some weird shit along the way but as the series evolved it has gone through various video games the premise of the sword art online series is that at least in the first season the characters get trapped in a video game where that if you die in the game you die in real life um that premise goes away for most of the series but everything that's happening you know big real world stakes that are taking place inside of video games and it it made sense that they would make a series of video games that initially loosely followed the events of the show. But as the games have gone on, they have gotten farther and farther separated from the show. The characters stay on. Um, some of the plot points from the show have bits and pieces that are in the games. But after the first game, really, which playing it on PC, it was actually, I think, three games that they kind of smushed together into one um, sort of major PC release, but after the first game on PC, it really starts to drift away from the storyline, and so that may means that it, you can easily accidentally get confused about which game is next in the series. Fatal Bullet is the fourth game in the series, but I thought it was the third. Um, it is, however, far enough removed from the story of the Gungale online arc in the games, um, because it has gone all in on the separate sort of alternate world video game story that you wouldn't know. And honestly, it's the easiest to jump in because it's the first game, because I did look into the third game, and it's the first game that you play entirely as your own separate protagonist. The first three games... The first game doesn't allow you to play as anybody at all, except for the main character from the show, Kirito. Um, the second and third games allow you to create characters that are for multiplayer purposes only, and you can grind them out in single player, but they don't have any... They, they can't progress the story. In this one, you start out making your own character from scratch that has their own separate story. So I, of course, made the most anime-looking uh, female protagonist that I could with ridiculous proportions and crazy hair, both in style and in color. Um, and then really quickly, you get an AI companion that I also did the same for, but kind of the opposite direction. So my character is like a giant tall woman with huge boobs and hips and like green and pink hair. And this, my AI is like a teeny tiny anime boy that has hair that changes all the time. Because the AI will come up to you and be like, hey, I want to change my my look. And you can say no, or you can just say yes, and it will randomize their look. So their look is constantly changing. But Fatal Bullet uh, is about 75% of Warframe. Um, which is not what I was expecting to happen. Gun Gale Online is the first game in the show that they go into that has doesn't focus on fantasy style stuff. It's this sci-fi dystopia future world where that everybody uses, you know, guns and uh there are of course uh 
air quotes laser swords but in the in the original release of the gun gale arc they just used lightsaber sounds that's no longer the case they got in in big trouble for that but if you ever see the original run it's just lightsaber noises um which i think is hilarious but um so you're dropped into this sci-fi dystopian video game world and as soon as i started playing it i was like this feels like warframe um and like i said it's about 75 percent of the way there which is not me damning with faint praise it's very I, I i've only ever played a couple of games that really managed to do the warframe movement system correctly and that's where it's it gets to the 75 percent mark the gunplay in the game as well as the way that it approaches your weapons loadouts and your special abilities that go along with weapons feel straight up just copied from warframe um which is not a bad thing well i think warframe has an excellent um weapon you know an excellent combat system excellent guns excellent gunplay and this does that the movement system is where it kind of falls apart a little bit you get this grappling hook gun that lets you zip around the map um and you could do kind of a um almost like a just cause spider manning but it's very clear that they were going for something faster more like warframe um but you know it's it's good it's got like i said the good gunplay elements and then the movement system is good enough that it doesn't feel clunky um even though i can feel those sort of missing edges of doing like sprint slide jump sprint slide jump to to run faster than you can just sprint um that's you know missing but i keep trying to do it you know but um essentially you're playing through a, a video game storyline where that there are stakes behind the scenes things going on uh your character really? yeah your character finds this experimental ai that's supposed to be in the game as like um companions to help players out and you find one uh and suddenly you become like the center of this game's you know world all these players are trying to talk to you people are trying to steal your ai and it seems like that there might be some shady government shit going on with this ai and uh you're trying to explore and learn what's going on with it and the the entirety of it takes place inside the game world. There's mention to stuff outside the real world. There are characters, again, wholly original characters to this, that serve as your sort of backstory uh, exposition primers. You have a couple of friends that you play with in the game, and they can be companions as you go out and do missions and stuff. But you talk to them, you build relationships with them, and they fill you in on the backstory of your life outside of the game. Um, the game has got a sort of a simple choice mechanic. Um, you can shape your character's personality a bit through interactions with others. They will ask you questions about things, or you will occasionally get to respond with, you know, option A or B that gives some different dialogue and builds up sort of your reputation and personality within the game and can change the way that certain other characters approach you. It's not major, as far as I can tell, it doesn't seem like there are like two or three major storylines and you build this personality. It just seems like a, a a way to make the game artificially feel like it's a little deeper than it is with its character engagement system. I can kind of see through it. I don't think sort of quote unquote, just someone playing the game because they like sort out online. I don't think they're going to notice that. It's just, you know, 
we play games a little differently than the average person. So I think that's why I recognized it so quickly. <laughs> um, the gameplay loop is uh, there are gradually larger open world segments of this world that you go to. There are uh, sort of MMO style missions that you can do to grind out resources. Um, you know, material to upgrade your weapons, money to buy new guns and equipment. And these are things like, you know, collect X number of cyborg asses instead of, you know, bear asses. You're collecting cyborg asses. Um, there's treasure hunting quests uh, where that you go and find unique loot and weapons. You can, of course, grind out dungeons and do sort of this game's equivalent of raids where that you go to a um, world area you fight through, you defeat a number of other air quotes players um, and, uh, you know, take their stuff. Then there are the story missions that involve um, going and doing specific things, fighting and killing specific enemies, doing dungeon crawls, um, that kind of stuff. So, uh, and in all the way you're using, like I said, the Warframe combat system. Um, all in all, it's a very solid gameplay loop. It's not going to... Uh, what's what's the right way to say this? Doesn't make it seem like I'm like damning with faint praise because I'm not doing that. It's not exceptional. It's not going to change the way that that you you know the the royal you have played video games before. It's very clearly copying certain other systems, but it's doing it well. It's very fun, very enjoyable, and it transitions the Sword Art Online MMO you know fake MMO experience into a third person action shooter extremely well um and it it utilizes the fact that you're playing more in real time um have a gr much greater freedom of movement uh and using that to its advantage um otherwise all the key tropes of an mmorpg are there you level up you get stat boosts you get better equipment as you move to new areas you realize that your um you know your Equipment is not keeping up with the new enemies, so you have to do, you know, you have to grind for levels and equipment. You go back to old areas, and you can just blow through them because of how much stronger you are and can, you know, grind out loot and stuff like that. The only other thing that it really adds worth of note or worth mentioning is uh, it does have these story modules that let you play through things from the show. Um, you take on the role of other characters. And you play them uh, with preset equipment lists and levels. And when you complete those, you bring um, some experience and then special rewards back out of those into, you know, sort of your quote unquote, your main character, um, which you can then use and spend on other rewards and level ups and such. And then there is the uh, Bullet of Bullets tournament, which is a thing from the show that is extremely high-level in-game content that it gives you a tease of early on. Um, but the... I don't know what the level cap is for this game, but the Bullet of Bullets final tournament is level 300. And I've been playing for about 12 hours, and I'm level 35. Mm -hmm. So I'm guessing that this you can really grind a fuck-ton on this game. So I think I've said this with all of the other games when I've talked about them. If you like Sword Art Online, you will like this game. It is a very competent game that sticks close enough to the lore of the show 
and features sort of, you know, your favorite characters and your favorite places, you will like this. If you like MMOs and want to play an MMO kind of offline, like you like the feel of MMOs because grinding is good for your brain or is a good way for you to listen to podcasts and audiobooks, you will not like this game as much as the other entries because it does require you to be a bit more active since it's copying Warframe's movement and combat systems. But there are still enough of those offline MMO elements that I think you could find it enjoyable. If you're a hardcore Warframe player, I don't think you'll like this game because there's enough that it gets wrong on the movement system to be frustrating to someone who's a hardcore Warframe player. Otherwise... I haven't played Warframe in a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, it's a solid game. If you're really... If you're wanting to get into Sword Art Online, but you don't want to watch the anime, or you don't want to be burdened without the you know having all of the knowledge of the shows, this is probably the best entry. Like I said, it's Sword Art Online adjacent. The characters show up. Some of the main storylines are there. But it, at this point, this this game series is in its own world, and you make your own character. So I would recommend it. Um if you're in one of the categories of people that I was like, you know, if you like this kind of thing, I'd recommend it to those people. If you're outside of that, probably not. Um, I think it's still just specific enough that it doesn't play well for general audience. I think you have to be invested in either the show or really invested in the offline MMO experience. So yeah, sort out online fatal bullet. Money, in my opinion, well spent because of all of the things that I like. Yeah, but it doesn't have shapes, so. That is true. Or belts. Or dwarves. Well, it doesn't have those kind of belts and dwarves, but it does have belts and dwarves. Decorative belts and dwarf enemies. Cyborg dwarf enemies with guns and mech suits. So speaking of enemies, should we move on to our topics? Let's yeah, that's that's a good idea. We've got a bunch of them. Let's move on to our news topics. So Ubisoft delays Skull and Bones again, cancels three games, as Mario plus Rabbids and Just Dance disappoint. Indeed. Oh Ubisoft. <laughs> oh Ubisoft, indeed. Okay, so Skull and Bones. There, there, there's no way this game's gonna live up to Hype is not the right word, because I'm not sure if anybody is hyped about Skull and Bones at this point. It's been, what, four, five thousand years? Elrond yeah. was there watching the, the E3 announcement. Right. right, watching Isildur not cast the ring into the fire. <laughs> Skull and uh, Bones, if I remember correctly, because I haven't looked up a screenshot or a video of this in a while, Skull and Bones is the game that was the pirate game that used the Assassin's Creed Black Flag like ship combat and made that into its own game, right? That's what Skull and Bones is. Yeah, but there was only like a little teaser, and it wasn't very clear if you know you're like just you know the ship if you were commanding the ship like in Assassin's Creed. And it's a very PvP-focused game. So, oh, that's going to be dangerous already, right? Yeah. And, I... Oh, go, go ahead. ahead. 
Uh, no, you go ahead, because what I'm going to say, like... Well, well, they, it, they just... I just remember a small teaser, and then them just going radio silent for ages, and then saying, oh yeah, it's coming out this year, and now it's, yeah, uh, delayed again. Yeah. I, d- I don't think this game is going to be finished. I think that the time to capitalize on that, on it being a, a pirate PvP, pirate naval warfare, whatever game, I think that time has passed, and it might come around again. I mean, I'm sh- well, I'm sure eventually it'll come back around again. The problem is, is that this game... You know, by the time that happens, it's going to be so old and outdated. Like, I just don't see them releasing this game. Well, could be uh, wrong. Well, there's but... some scuttlebutt about Skull and Bones. Is that there's some sort of thing going on with Singapore where the studio that's making Skull and Bones is located? That they got some sort of government funding where they have to ship Skull and Bones. Oh. That, That's right. Uh, I do it, remember that. There, there's all it's all rumors, but it makes a lot of sense. Well, Skull and Bones is the one game that they're not canceling, right? Yeah, That's not Assassin's Creed related, right? This is like a um, Uva Bowl thing when he was making movies in Germany. <laughs> like, I mean, they were all you know losing money and like horrible, but he got so much money from the government that it made it worth it. Like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, boy, Germany regret that uh, tax loophole. Yeah, there there are probably some good films that were made because of that that I'm just not aware of. But yeah, but yeah, uh, you know, it's more well known that give it bowl. Uh, yeah, uh, use it to just shit out some really bad games or game related movies. Yeah, but anyways, uh, I I had forgot about that because you mentioned that to me the other day when we were talking about this, or someone. Someone said something to me about it, and I was like, oh, that makes sense, actually, why they would do that. Yeah, so uh, three unannounced projects were also canceled. Uh, no idea what that is. Maybe it'll get leaked eventually what it was. Yeah. And it's a decision taken to ensure all energy is focused on building brands and live services into some of the most powerful within the industry. Uh, this was a from their press release. Um, Ubisoft, do you do realize that outside of Assassin's Creed, you don't really have a lot going on these days, right? Nope, they don't have much left. I'm I'm gonna be a little conspiratorial here for a second. I mean, my niece yeah. loves the just get dance games, so there is that. Yeah, yeah, but I, I'm gonna be a little conspiratorial here for a second. Um, Ubisoft is supposedly on the defensive again about being bought out. I see. I hadn't heard for certain that they're on the defensive, but yeah, so, it does make sense. Yeah. So I'm thinking that they're restructuring and reorganizing to be prepared to fight back against that takeover again. And then if that fails to put themselves in a better position for the, um, the, uh, ah, shoot. How do you say his name? The, the the people who run Ubisoft, Guillermo or, huh? Douche, yeah, douchebags. <laughs> I just got you off guard. Yeah, but but for them to be in a better position to just sort of package it and sell it kind of wholesale, like it doesn't make sense to me. Unless they're lying, it also could just be that they're lying, right? These companies could absolutely lie um, about. Well, you know, well they they're could be talking cooking. about 
uh, investments into increased cautiousness uh, related uh, to the uh, challenging video game market and macroeconomic environment as well as necessary increased focus on fewer titles. Yeah, and see that that to me, I'm going to be, you know, again, conspiratorial. I think that they're gearing up to be able to more easily defend their holdings in this uh, this second attempted takeover. Um, second, it's I, more like the 12th. Well, second major one, like big one. My my other theory is a little less conspiratorial, but no less like uh, they're incompetent. <laughs> no less uh, funding minded, which is. Last week, Microsoft and Google both announced they were laying off something like three to five percent of their workforce. I mean, it was thousands. Uh, one of them, it was like nine thousand employees at the time of the announcement, and the other one was fifteen or sixteen. I can't remember which one was which. Google or versus Microsoft. Like the tech industry, they're not in trouble, so to speak. Um, you know, these are multi-billion-dollar international companies, like. At the end of the day, they're not in trouble. But because of economic forces um, caused by a multitude of things, still knock-on effects from COVID, global inflation, issues caused by the war in Ukraine, they're just, they're feeling a bit of a crunch. And of course, instead of executives, you know, doing things like cutting their own pay, um, changing certain structures around so that they could keep employees. They're just going to dump employees and Ubisoft might also be gearing up to do something similar. They're cutting all these products mm-hmm. um, in, in preparation of cutting employees. But Ubisoft is also, uh, well, it's not as bad as where uh, Enix has been, but having unrealistic sales goals, I don't know. I couldn't find direct figures for uh, Mario's Plus Rapids uh, sequel, but it released third in Japan, which is pretty good. Yeah, Japan is a pretty good, pretty decent sized market, respectable numbers, but it wouldn't have been, you know, all of the numbers. True, and also, uh, Ubisoft has kind of devalued some of their games, especially the Mario's Plus Rapids games, because. They go on sale often sub $20. And I haven't actually finished the previous one, so it doesn't make me want to jump on board for this one, if you know what I mean. Yeah, but... Yeah, regardless of whatever their true reasons are, I'm sure we'll find out soon enough. Um, Yeah, now I'm trying to find uh, what released around that time. Let's see. It was up against Persona. Persona 5, uh, Borderlands, oh, sorry, Tales from the Borderlands, Bayonetta 3, Factorio. Oh, by the way, Factorio's on uh, Switch, by the way. No Man's Sky, uh, Plague Tale Requiem. So, yeah, coming up third in that is not bad. Especially since, you know, like, number one is always, like, Mario Kart. Yeah, it is still Japan, after all. But, yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you. Ubisoft has devalued a lot of their games. They would certainly, even if it's not as bad as Square, they would, or they have, you know, they have unrealistic sales expectations. Um, and they have met some failures, like most game development companies have recently, trying to pursue these live service titles to the exclusion of anything else. 
we talked about it during the game awards. We've talked about it multiple times before. I'm sure we'll talk about it a few more times. The market cannot set, support that many live service games. Yeah, People's time and uh, every uh, publisher wants to push out several of them. Yeah. People's time is a finite resource. So, yeah. Fuck Ubisoft. And I, I, I don't have the details on the Just Dance disappointment, but basically, uh, from what I understood vaguely, they stripped out a lot of features uh, in the latest version to yeah, reintroduce later on, most likely. Probably. But also some behind-the-scenes stuff of like changing the engine and updating things. It's just... Uh, it's not a great year for Just Dance. So that's also... Yeah, there's a reason why those sales aren't as good, but also... Yeah, all right. Yeah. And according to Amazon, uh, uh, Mario Kart is on like the top three <laughs> for US. So, mm, all right. Which makes sense. Mario Kart, extremely popular. I like Mario Kart. I don't play it all that often, but I like it. So, actually, I don't see Mario plus Rabbids on here anywhere. So maybe it has fallen off. Oh, no, there it is. According to this, it's number 18 right now, which is not great. For which market, though? Uh, well, this is the U.S. market. I'm looking at U.S. Amazon, which is you know, a very uh, small fragment because you know, game sales is still a lot in physical stores. Yeah. But mm, it's one way to try to judge it because the, uh, there's not a unified thing in the U.S. for uh, game sales like, the, uh, like there is in other countries. According to this, uh, Fire Emblem Engage is number one, which I fully you know, expect, as well as Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. So, What the fuck is that? The, I sequel, do not... to Breath of, the sequel to Breath of the Wild that's releasing in May. Oh. I don't, I don't keep up with Legend of Zelda, so... I need to finish that to uh, jump on this one. Breath of the Wild is a, well, a, a wild game to go into. All right. Um, I don't. I don't know if I have anything else to add to to this one. Do you? Not really. Outside of, uh, it's going to be a wild time coming up because. Oh, and also we didn't even mention uh, they had another project that wasn't related to the, those. Their project Q, which seemed to be a battle royale, or sorry, not battle royale, a uh, boba. A MOBA releasing in 2023, right? Yeah. Or 2024. Uh, MOBAs are kind of a settled market at this point, unless you, know, you do something really wild with the formula. Which, granted, is not impossible, but that innovation almost never comes from AAA studios. Mm -hmm. I mean, hell, even when they do, uh, they, they bog it down so much. Like, you have uh, Roller Arena, which... Yeah. It, it's so bogged down with microtransactions and utter bullshit and some frankly bad design that outside of uh, being just a free-to-play title for kids to jump on, I just don't see you know, why anybody would spend time with it. And it's roller the, champions. It's the only roller derby game that I'm aware of on the market, so... Yeah, pretty much. That, that would be the only other reason that I could think of. Which, according to this, there's like 2,000 players right now. 
more than I expected, honestly. I mean, that's not good, you know, it's not good numbers given, you know, the publisher, but more than I expected. According to this, the Steam version has 32. 32, not 3,200? No, 32. Okay. As in, one more than 31 and one less than 33. Of course. With a 24-hour peak of 86. Wow. And an all-time peak of 141. Very healthy and, and fine community there, I must say. With, of course, a heaping amount of sarcasm. <laughs> but, yeah. Okay. Let's um let's move on to our next news topic. So this one is a is a little out of our usual wheelhouse. It is the the uh, Wizards of the Coast uh mess following the update of their open game license. So Yeah, but I have a feeling you could tackle this. So go uh, get them champ. This is this has shown up in our in our Discord um, several times back and forth over the last couple of weeks, and I've mentioned it on a couple of shows that I was going to talk about it. Um, a little bit outside of our usual wheelhouse, but uh, Wizards of the Coast is following the game developer playbook pretty pretty much beat for beat. Um, the comparison that I'm most making here is to whenever game developers introduce something really shitty and then walk it back to sneak in or not necessarily sneak in, but to openly put in something that's bad, but not quite as bad as what they were going to do. And people then praise them for it. And the, uh, the, the window for shittiness gets kind of shifted in the worst direction, but everyone seems to be okay with it because, well, it wasn't as bad as the thing that they were going to do. We can talk them down. They're reasonable, right? See, they're reasonable. They came back. So I'm going to be speaking about this pretty broadly. There are a number of excellent YouTube videos that break this down in full detail um, from Legal YouTubers. Eagle, uh, did really good on it. Legal Eagle produced a very good video on it. There were a couple that I have posted in the Discord group. Um a saga by uh, D&D Shorts, which is a YouTube channel that does a lot more than just short videos talking about D&D. Um, and oftentimes it, they're, they're kind of shitposty style content of like, hey, here's how you can use the weird mecha- mechanics to do something crazy and stupid. But because he's one of the larger D&D YouTubers, he was able to get a lot of insider information. He has released... I believe four videos on the subject now going in depth on it. So there are other resources that could give you much more specific in-depth information on it. If you want to follow up and haven't found them already, this is going to be a sort of uh, top down overview of what has happened and with perhaps some comparison to the games industry. So in the early two thousands, wizards of the coast released um, their open game license 1.0, which outlined a, a lot of things in order to help promote the growth of the game by, in essence, farming out um, some of their content creation. Um, they realized that a the tabletop community thrives based on um, the homebrew content that DMs and other dedicated players create. 
from stories to custom classes, um, things of that nature. The easiest comparison is mods for large-scale games, um, basically anything released by Bethesda. But, you know, huge swaths of games have vibrant modding communities that keep the game going long after or long between um, major releases. And early on, the makers of D&D realized, like, we can't keep up with the demand. We need a way to officially, legally entice people to do so, to create content for our game, release it to the wider community, sell it, and let us kind of piggyback on it a little bit. So, the to the best of my understanding, the original open game license explicitly called out hey players dms make content for our game sell it if you'd like there are a few things that we won't allow you to sell um which basically was their original um trademark and copyright stuff you couldn't use the wizards of the coast logo without their permission you couldn't claim that you were official content unless you got permission from them to do so but in essence you could make whatever you wanted and sell it, or at the very least, release it to the wider community without fear of um, repercussion by Wizards of the Coast. And their, uh, I believe they had just bought them at the time. That might have come slightly after. Uh, but Mattel, Mattel owns Wizards of the Coast, owns D&D, and as such, a host of other things that they produce. Um, most notably, uh, Magic Gathering, but they have other properties as well. And that stood for about 20 years. Um, a rather large, vibrant community has sprung up as a result of this. Um, many unofficial modules are just as popular, even more so than the official D&D content. And it has allowed for things like Critical Role, Dimension 20, uh, among others, to, to spring up. These communities of essentially professional D&D players who make a living doing so under this license now legal eagle made some good points that perhaps you never really needed the license to do that but the fact that they directly called it out kind of helped to foster that development with their air quotes open game license 1.1 they walked a lot of that back um, they put a lot of restrictions on their content or on what content you could sell they put a clause in there that said that they could use any content produced under this license at any time without notice and without having to pay the creators any type of royalty or anything for it. Basically, they owned the intellectual property and could use it as they saw fit. Um, larger content creators and developers had to start. Um, they had caps on how much money they could make. Uh, I believe it was $750,000. Which to you or I, you know, is a shitload of money. But to companies, even small companies who are producing this content for a living, that's kneecapping these companies. Um, and then there was a certain amount, uh, I believe it was anything over $50,000. Uh, I could have the number slightly wrong, but... It was something like anything over $50,000, you had to start paying percentages up until you got to the maximum, at which point in time you had to give them everything. And obviously, creators 
flipped the fuck out over this because this was destroying livelihoods of, of small business owners and content creators who had been able to make a living creating and selling D&D content or commentary on that content. Probably the closest thing that I can think of in direct comparison in the games industry was when Nintendo put those massive restrictions on people producing YouTube and streaming content. Um, essentially, you had to sign up for their uh, really shitty um, uh, deal, really shitty contract, or you were just going to have everything that you made nuked by Nintendo anyways. So it's like, you know, take the bad deal with the gun to your head or or get nothing. And that's where Wizards of the Coast put all of these content creators. Now, there are some things about specific dates. They dumped this on people and basically said, sign this within a week or you know, we're going to come after you with the full uh, might of our legal teams and uh, so on and so forth. There were essentially mass protests by the community. Pe- whole swaths of people, like massive swaths of people canceled their D&D Beyond memberships, uh, which is their digital platform, their digital subscription platform that gives you access to a whole host of tools as well as content um, digitally. It's a monthly subscription. The cheapest tier is, I think, five bucks a month, and it kind of gives you all of the basic stuff. You can, of course, buy modules and pay for higher tiers of of access and content. Um, And they were, you know, churning out a shitload of money with these subscriptions. And I don't know what the number is, but so many people were canceling their subscriptions and getting refunds that the website crashed. And then they just kind of shut it down anyways to prevent people from doing that anymore. Which, illegal. Yep, yep. So they did have to put it back up after they did that, and they got called on it. But, I mean, for a while, it the whole system just crashed. Um, and so then after after that, they came out with an apology.jpg. And we're like, oh, we're sorry that this draft that we released caused so much of a problem. We're working to fix it. We want to fix it. Um, And then there was some snark at the end um, that was, you know, along the lines of like, whenever you speak out, we all win. Everyone's saying that we lost, but we also won too. Um, And so then they have come up with the open game license 1.2 release, which keeps some of the restrictions, but backs off on them being able to essentially have unlimited access to your intellectual property and backs off the uh, maximums that you can earn. They are still going to be taking a percentage of sales, a percentage of Kickstarter uh, funds moving forward. And there are some restrictions that are placed on the community. A couple of them I agree with, but they're legally worded in such a way as to be dangerous. So ultimately, it's still a downgrade. Essentially, the only ones that I agree with are that you're bound to not put hate speech and other offensive language into the content you create. But they ultimately, like legally speaking, they as a company get to decide what that counts as. And so easily they can swoop in and censor content that, for example, gets too political or gets too, um, that, that calls them out, essentially. So I don't like that. I like the spirit of it, but the legal 
of it. You know, we have seen that type of language be used against people by companies and governments throughout, you know, history. So it's it's not quite as bad, but it's still worse than the original license that they had produced. Um, and so, you know, the community, of course, is like, oh, this is better. See, they're listening to us. They're changing. And again, it's following the video game playbook of create something egregious that they would love to have, but ultimately they get to walk it back to what they want anyways, which is still greater control over the content being produced and a cut, uh, a piece of the pie, so to speak. Mattel wants Dungeons and Dragons to be the first billion dollar property in the tabletop RPG gaming space. (laughs) Wizards of the Coast as a whole is a billion dollar company. We don't, at least to my knowledge, don't know the exact amount of money that Dungeons and Dragons itself is worth. Estimated 150 to 200 million dollars is what the D&D portion of Wizards of the Coast is worth. Um, And Mattel wants it to be worth a billion dollars. And that's where that all of this is coming from. Now, again, the content that um, some of these YouTubers have created that really goes in depth on it can give more information but some highlights um the original creators owners etc of D are all you know falling to the wayside they're being bought out or pushed out the new people that are coming in are executives that only are interested in money that don't play the game that have gone on record saying things like oh you know this is like and honestly like video games they they treat the market they have directly said that they're treating the market like the mobile gaming market, which is not good. You do not want to hear that. And so I think uh, that we're going to start seeing the long, slow decline, or maybe not so long and slow decline of Dungeons and Dragons into a microtransaction kind of equivalent space. Only time will tell how bad it gets, but I think that that's, that's where... Dungeons and Dragons is heading. As someone who plays a lot of tabletop games, if you're listening to this and this is the first that you've really heard of it or the first kind of in-depth or more in-depth explanation you've gotten of it, uh, there are many other systems out there that you can play and enjoy, as well as you can just raise the Jolly Roger and get all of the D&D 5th edition content for free. Um, And a lot of the older edition content Anyway, some of it has even been released kind of open source. A lot of people have made the jump to Pathfinder. Um, personally, I'm a big fan of Vampire the Masquerade. Uh, you know, I, I, if, if asked, I could tell you where you could get a lot of the Vampire the Masquerade content. Yarr. Maybe all of it, you know? I, I might allegedly know where you could do that if you just ask me on our Discord server. Uh, just like video games, you know, raise the Jolly Roger. Uh, be a part of, of the revolution. Steal everything that isn't nailed down is basically what I'm saying. Steal in my name. It's fine. Just tell him I told you to steal if you get caught. We'll go down together. We'll, we'll burn it down together. You just want to get them trapped in a cell with you. That wouldn't be a downside, in my opinion. We would have a good time. But yeah, that's that's my... Honestly, short, quick and dirty version of what's going on with the Wizards of the Coast scandal. 
and I will I will rest my voice and allow you to lead us into the next topic and start talking about it. Yeah, because I really don't have a lot to say about that. <laughs> because yeah. that was more your thing. So Stadia leaves PC uh, gamers a little treat with unlocking their controllers to actually be able to use Bluetooth. Like a lot of things out there these days, the Stadia controllers had a Bluetooth chip in them, but it was locked down outside of just the initial setup uh, for the Stadia service, which is dead, by the way. Oh, well, right? Yep. And then everything was uh, uh, routed through Wi-Fi. It could be used before the, uh, this tool was released uh, a few days ago uh, as a direct input wired controller. But honestly, does anybody really want to do a wired controller these days? Not if really. Have the option? Yeah, not really. So they released this patch to uh, basically make it a, a new direct input controller. And I, I saw somebody doing a teardown of this controller just the other day it was uh, in a compilation of you know, just electronics that he was uh, looking at and I never realized just how over engineered the CD controller is he literally ran over it with a car and it still worked nice big uh, fan of the car test <laughs> I mean it, it did break the analog uh, triggers but that was because uh, it snapped something in the uh, uh, inside it. It like overextended them. Yeah, but he did mention that it was repairable. Uh, uh, the interesting thing about it is that uh, he poked around inside it, and it was like it, 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 it like funded the screw economy for a while. I mean, it it, it looked like yeah, you'd have to like. Build an entire factory just for all the screws in this thing. It was amazing. And it makes me a little sad that Google basically gives up on a actually decent controller. Because outside of the, you know, obviously the console controllers, there's really not a great market for PC controllers, is there? Thinking about it. No. What control? Oh shit! What controllers are there that aren't <laughs> console controllers, and then like garbage? Good point. <laughs> yeah. Let's see. Um. Let's go to Amazon. I want. I want to do this now for a second. Okay. Experiment time. Just type in PC controller. Yeah. PC gaming controller. Uh, oh shit, there's the Luna controller, which is, let's be real, just a copy of the Xbox or maybe the Switch uh, mm-hmm. Pro controller. I mean, honestly, a lot of these look like Xbox controllers for good reason. Oh god, the Logitech one looks uh, like, you know, the you know, the guest controller that you'd had in, like, 1990. Yep, yep. I actually owned one of those at one point. Is it as bad as it looks? It's not. Um, the one that I had didn't have rumble in it, so that was a bit odd. But, I mean, it really did feel like a decent um, PlayStation 2, PlayStation 3 controller. But, I mean, I don't think this controller has been updated since I owned one, like, a decade ago. 
Yeah, <laughs> simple plug and play USB controller works with Windows XP, Vista, and seven, which technically means that it would still work with Windows eight and Windows ten. <laughs> but yeah, Logitech does make pretty solid peripherals, quality wise. Um, I mean, fifteen bucks. This feels like the dregs of what they were selling. That's the wired one, the F three ten. Then there's the F seven ten wireless controller. And then, yeah, a whole bunch of stuff that looks like just cheap uh, Xbox and PlayStation controller knockoffs. Hurdle Beach makes one that is compatible with Xbox. MSI makes a gaming controller? Oh, but this looks just like an Xbox controller that they put MSI logos on. I love the one that looks like the PlayStation 4 controller (laughs) with absolutely plain buttons. Yeah. Razer makes one, but this also just looks like an Xbox, a weird Xbox compatible controller. Mind you, we're just looking at them. None of these, you know, we're actually holding, obviously. So can you imagine holding some of these? Yeah, they would have to be just cheap, plastic, weightless garbage. Or they just have like a lead weight in them to make them feel somewhat decent. Yeah. I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, to see basically anything that's not a mm-hmm. a, a specific purpose-built wheel or joystick, um, you know, like a HOTAS setup, to see that uh, console controllers have become basically ubiquitous, even on the PC gaming market. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the $105 Razer controller. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which, oh, the D-pad on that looks like it sucks. It's one of the split D-pads. But it does have an interesting feature on it where it looks like you're able to have, you know, like, mute your microphone and uh, uh, audio uh, off the controller itself. So there is that. It's neat, but it's not, yeah, $100 neat. Yeah. So having, uh, yeah, Uh, another option is always nice. I I was wanting to look into it looked like the triggers at least on the uh stadium controller were hall effect triggers. They weren't yeah fi- yeah yeah potentiometers or anything. Which yo know, damn, right? <laughs> I'm not sure if the thumbsticks were or not. Most likely they were if they were using it for the analog sticks. So if you're looking for a controller and don't mind it just being a direct input. Now, that's the problem, is that this does not have direct X or d- the uh, direct X input. So it'll show up as like, you know, button one, button two, button three. Yeah, old school, you know, like, yeah, 1995 controllers, right? Yeah. But I'm sure that there's enough of a hacker community out there that they'll put something together to, you know, have better support and there's also of course the the yeah, the steam uh uh yeah controller overlay so there is an option there as well now i'm wondering oh my god this is the most generic bullshit i'm sorry so then i just went and googled it this is on walmart's website usb wired gaming pc controller for computer laptop game windows 10 8.187 xp ps3 playstation 3 android devices pc 360 steam game tv box game (laughs) 
It is $27, and it looks like garbage. Looks like you could get a Stadia controller for about 30 bucks right now. That's not bad. No. That's, that's very not bad. You should buy a Stadia controller <laughs> for $30. Add it to my uh, collection. Yeah. My uh, road wet, uh, put away, or sorry, <laughs> put away wet uh, 360 controller that has like drift on it because I used it for like a decade. Yeah. <laughs> Though I do have uh, this right here. Not sure if you heard that. I did not hear that. What was it? That was the Steam controller booting up. Oh. Yep. I sent you mine, right? Yes. Yeah. It has served you longer and better than it did me. Well, it sits on my desk and collects dust half the time. Well. But I do po- uh, poke around with it every so often. Now, the downside of the Steam controller, of course, is the battery life. It only has a six to eight hour battery life. Worse than actually the DualShock 4. So there is that. Which is not nice. But considering I I imagine some of these are just absolute dog shit on their battery life. What is this one doing with the lights? Huh. That's interesting. So the MSI one, you can actually swap out the D-pad cover. So you have like the Nintendo style or you have like this, I think indented uh like uh eight direction one i can't imagine who would use that it just looks so weird it looks like a steel drum it looks like you know i should be uh, playing some reggae music on it start bopping my head (laughs) honestly controllers uh, for pc it's pretty much just get a console controller of some sort at this point i mean there's a few options out there but even then they're not Either they're not great or they're, uh, you know, uh, more expensive than getting a console controller. Yeah. I hadn't really looked at them in a long time. Oh, oh God, that's hideous. Uh, on page two of the uh, Amazon results, there's one that's just like, uh, it has like skulls and uh, random bones on it. And it's like, <laughs> I don't know what they're trying to do with this. Uh, uh, so it looks like a knockoff uh, uh, PlayStation 4 controller. It has just random skull on one of the you know, handles. And then it looks like just almost like a rib cage across the top. Which, uh, by the way, that's not how rib cages work. They don't go up above the skull. But they also uh, boast so much about their 800 milliamp battery. <laughs> 800 milliamps. How long would that last? Three seconds? Well, according to this, eight to ten hours. I see. I feels a little, uh, a little optimistic. Maybe eight to ten hours without the uh, uh, rumble going on, assuming this actually has rumble. Yeah. Oh, but uh, I never realized just how bad the FPC gaming market was for controllers. I'm sure that there. Well, actually, uh, uh, there. Okay, there is one. Uh, 8-Bit Do uh, has uh, good controllers uh, for about console price. Uh, if you ever looked into them, uh, they do uh, make console controllers as well. And they're actually what I have for the, the uh, my RetroPie. Yeah. It's a pair of uh, essentially knockoff uh, Super Nintendo pads. 
they have some really nice controllers, but they are mostly focused on the console market because, yeah, that's where most of them sell. Yeah. All right. Uh, I think we should move on to our yeah, next because, topic. Because things are going to run late if we don't. Yep. So, our next news topic, European Parliament votes to take action against loot boxes, gaming addiction, gold farming, and more. Yeah, on the surface, this seems great, doesn't it? It does. It does sound great. Yeah, now, where's the monkeys, Paul? Uh, buried in this article somewhere. <laughs> so, uh, there's quite a few individual points that they wanted to highlight on this. Uh, but it's mostly focused around consumer protection laws, expanding them and uh, wording them to better fit the general fuckery that's going on with uh, video games. So I'm just going to go over the bullet points at the bottom of this article because it's kind of going over everything. So the European Commission was asked to assess how the PEGI system is being implemented and the different types of games available, and to consider uh, enshrining it into EU law to make PEGI, its code of conduct, a mandatory age rating system for all games in a single market. Or in the single market, which I'm not sure how I feel about making it an absolute requirement, because that could impact indie gaming. Uh, What about you? Yeah. I don't know. It's kind of... That's kind of a weird... A, a weird spot, right? Um, requiring that all games be rated so that things like loot boxes and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, can be, like, forcibly categorized and, and called out makes sense. Well, how do you do that, right? You, you tell everybody they have to use some kind of rating system to stick to. Now, I'm not as familiar with Peggy compared to the ESRB ratings. I mean, I know that they functionally are supposed to accomplish the same thing, but I don't know if you have to submit to Peggy in the same way that you do the ESRB, if there's a, um, because there is a fee involved with filing for an ESRB rating. Um, so depending on how they do it, it could be fine. Um, but I do like, that is in a weird catch 22. Like you have to have something, you have to have some official standard. That's like, this is what we're adhering to that everybody has to follow. Yeah, they got to have something. If they're not going to develop their own system, if they want to use one that's already in place, that makes this the most sense for the EU, since most EU countries already use PEGI. I'm not sure if any use the ESRB rating, since that's primarily for the uh, Americas, but, you know, I'm just not super familiar with PEGI, since I'm an American. Well, for now, at least. For now. Despite my best efforts, I am still American. So, to support the promotion of public and private education information uh, campaigns directed at parents and caretakers to inform them of the tools in place, such as the Peggy app, and to encourage usage. Essentially, make sure parents actually have the information in front of them. Which is, in my opinion, great, because some of these labels, at least in the ESRB system, is intentionally vague and can be uh, apply several ways and honestly some parents just don't get it they don't get into the gaming so they don't understand you know well what does cartoon violence actually mean right yeah i do think that problem will kind of naturally lessen as time goes on like gaming is just 
everywhere it's, now. To some extent, but it's never going to go completely away. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm just... Uh, I wanted to look at the actual Peggy ratings, so there's not as many as the SRB has. So, so there is that. So there's less to uh, to cover, but right. Yeah. Uh, so moving along to introduce common labels for information, uh, such as the recommended minimum age, the game's theme, in-game purchasing options, presence of pop-up advertising, and more. I have no problem with that. Nope. No, no. Um, make Good sure job. that that's very clear. Now, here's the monkey's paw. To develop a common European identity verification system to help check the age of players. I'm not sure how I feel about that because, you know, I do you think it should be up to the parents in the end what games uh, kids play? And honestly, sometimes games do get rated a way that... a uh, yeah, a middle schooler could play Call of Duty, and it's still considered a mature game, you know? Yeah. So, so this could go either way. It could be horrible nanny state invasion of privacy bullshit, or it could be something kind of like how that in the United States for certain things, like, I don't know, you go on a porn website, and it's like, do you confirm that you're 18 or older? It could be that. It could just serve as legal... Uh, an extra legal step to r- take liability off of companies. I'm not sure, but it, it it could go either way. Yeah, and that's kind of the uh, issue with just how it's worded. It makes it sound like it's a little bit more nanny statish. Which, you know, if they're preventing kids from playing games, that's just going to make kids, you know, get a little crafty about it. Right. So, develop um, minimum standards of privacy protection. Or, sorry, uh, preservation, but eh. No problem there. At least in my opinion. To collect EU-wide data on the average time spent playing games, average in-game spending, socio-psychological effects, present a yearly report to Parliament on it. That seems dangerous if they use it to try to legislate, saying people are spending too much time on games. That's where I'm a little concerned as well. Yeah, I'm always in favor of data collection and research. Uh, you uh, uh, having anonymous data collection. Yeah, again, it all depends on their data collection methodology and also what they're planning on doing with it. Yeah, how much p how much p hacking are they going to engage in? I don't know if you've ever heard that term. That's a real research term where mm-hmm. that sometimes researchers will just gather huge swaths of data. And then try to figure out, after they've gathered the data, what they can glean from it. The problem is, is that if you just gather data with no specific research focus in mind, you can kind of pretty easily get anything you want out of it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Cherry pick your statistics. Yeah. And I am a little concerned about psych- uh, social uh, psychological effects. Uh, them wanting to look at that specifically. Mostly because... It could uh, maybe I'm a little bit jaded with uh, American politics, uh, uh, politics, but our politicians are fucking ancient, and seems like they're taking classified documents where they shouldn't be. But that's kind of beside the point. (laughs) Yep, I've been seeing all of that. Yeah, now it's Pence, by the way. Yep, I saw. (laughs) Oh, 
But anyway, uh, part of me is a little concerned that they're going to use that as a way to say, well, the games are bad, and right? But yeah. that's but that's also fueled by my American way of looking at this, where the government is so fucking out of touch. My, I, you know, also American, but my best understanding of European politics, most of your European politics, just the political spectrum is so much farther to the left, Yeah, generally our, speaking. Yeah. Apart from, like, Bernie, all our uh, politicians on the world stage is, like, at minimum centrist. Yeah. Or at uh, best centrist. Yep. And so, that helps. I mean, it's not perfect. I'm sure governments are wildly out of touch with their populations everywhere you go. Mm-hmm. But I think that it's better. So to assess the possibility of requiring providers of online games targeting minors to develop child impact assessments. Once again, a little scary on the outset, but that's also looking at this from the American side of things, right? Yeah. I don't think I have a major issue with this. Um, just, you know. I think it's more just, you know, I'm leery of whenever they start targeting uh, games uh, made for kids. Enforcing reports that we've seen in the U.S. time and time again, uh, restrictions uh, attempted to be put on gaming. So that's probably where that comes from for me. Uh, Having the information out there and having them talk about it is a very good thing. And having it, you know, having like them going through and saying, okay, well, we're doing this, 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 and this to try to prevent kids from you know, spending all their money, right? Yeah. Okay, and uh, here's also something kind of scary sounding, at least at the first glance. To adopt, if needed, regulatory measures on games that allow players to create their own content in order to protect users, especially minors, from illegal practices. Um, regulatory content for who? The players or the... <laughs> or the... Uh, or the services that they're putting them on, because, right? Yeah, to me... I mean, it sounds I, like I, it's for, uh, consumer protection, and EU is a lot better about consumer protection, by far. To me, in practical terms, this sounds like that they would be more willing and able to put a stop to, like, Roblox scammers and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But, you know, anytime, like we were just talking about with Withers of the Coast... Anytime that they have kind of vague language about putting, you know, safeguards and controls in place, there's always room for them to abuse that. Yeah. So healthy skepticism, but I think the intent is to be able to rein in scams in games. Like maybe I've just been hurt so much by American politics, you know? Yeah, we're we're very traumatized by American politics. Mm-hmm. So now into the monetization points. To assess whether the current consumer law framework is sufficient to address all issues raised by loot boxes and in-game purchases, if not, to adapt the current framework for online games to uh, uh, propose standalone or to propose standalone legislation. No problem with that whatsoever. No, and I guarantee you it's not robust enough as written, even in the EU, Mm -hmm. to deal with loot boxes. Because this is just, yo. I don't think anybody would have expected this, you know, before it happened, right? Yeah. Just how nasty it gotten 
it has gotten in the last several years, especially in the bubble side of things. Yeah. To analyze the way in which loot boxes are sold and take necessary steps uh, to bring about a common European approach on loot boxes to protect consumers, in, uh, in particular, miners. No problems. Yep, no problems. As I shifted my chair. <laughs> to assess the use of gold farming in connection with financial crimes and human rights abuses to present uh, uh, and to present appropriate incentives and uh, sorry, initiatives if necessary. Uh, sorry, it's late. Yep. Uh, so, uh, one of the big rumors back in the day was that uh, and I know this is uh, probably partly fueled out of just blatant racism from some people. But there was also stories about how prisons in some Asian countries would use stuff like World of Warcraft and their prisoners to just gold farm and sell resources in, in a sweatshop-like environment. I, would, I honestly wouldn't be surprised if that was true. There was some news stories about it, but it always uh, was uh, you know, a, a rumor as well. About how rampant it was. Well, there. I'm, sure, I'm not sure if it's a problem in the EU, but right. Yeah, I mean, there have been companies um, that popped up around games that did pay workers very low wages in order to do just that. There have been confirmed reports of of at least you know businesses that did that in particularly Asian countries, but I think also African countries as well. Um, uh, I'd have right, to try to dig through. And, I was gonna say I just I'd have to try and dig through and find some of those old articles. But I remember seeing stuff about it several several years ago, um, and how a lot of those those had cut, had shifted over to mobile games and other mobile applications, where that it's cheaper to pay people, you know, essentially slave wages than it is to pay somebody to design you know, an app or a bot that, you know, can farm for you and keep it running in such a way that it could beat automatic algorithms that are in places in these games. This is a fascinating article. I think this was 2015 or 2016 when I read about it. Um, it came out around the same time that uh, CGP Grey did his Humans Need Not Apply video about automation um, in the job market. Uh, so they also... To put an end to illegal practices, allowing uh, anyone to exchange, sell, or bet on in-game and third-party sites for skim betting. No problems. Yep, no problems. Uh, skim betting is such a scummy practice these days. Uh, to ensure traders provide users with opt-in proposal at purchase for subscriptions, as well as with clear and easy accessible information on how to cancel auto-renewals at any time. Once again, no problems there. Oh, opt-out subscriptions is such a nasty thing. Yep. Fucking hate opt-out stuff. Oh, I mean, I'm, I, I, I'm always so careful whenever I'm buying something that's not on a major site. Yeah, I'm saying they're, you know, like five minutes going line by line, like, okay, am I missing anything? Right? Yeah, I try to be, but I'm 
honestly too impatient for that most of the time. Okay, and then industry support to update the EU Kids Online Research Project, which gathers EU-wide data on children's online experiences and uh, to fund this and similar incentives in the future. What? Protecting the kids? Blasphemy! Right? Fuck those kids. I didn't know you were Catholic. Hail Mary, Mother of God. Something, <laughs> something. The Pope shits in the woods. Yeah, something like that. Uh, to put forward a European uh, video game strategy that unlocks the economic, social, educational, cultural, and innovative potential of the sector to enable it to become a leader in the global video game market. Bring it on, right? <laughs> yeah. Please, Europe, save us. Uh, to present initiatives to improve the accessibility of online video games for persons with disabilities. Once again, no problems whatsoever. <laughs> uh, we are seeing a lot better uh, disability accessible games. It's far from perfect, and uh, it's more of the exception rather than the rule for the most part, but you know, it is an improvement. So having, you know, uh, the European Union pushing forward on that will make it more of a, well, standard and also uh, innovate some technologies to be able to do it as well. I mean, even just basic stuff like colorblind modes is not always there as it should be, even in uh, big titles. Yeah. Although Certainly, some, uh, some of them go all out on it, which is great. Certainly Europe is, you know, still not as good as it should be regarding disabilities. They are far and away better than the U.S. Yeah. Well, the U.S. had people literally crawling up uh, uh, the steps of the Capitol to get the Americans with Disability Act, so... Yeah, but but bootstraps, man. Don't you know? Gotta pull yourself up by them bootstraps. I almost threw up in my mouth a little bit when I said that. (laughs) Oh, don't worry. We're getting to that topic. (laughs) So I have no problem with most of this. I'm a little leery of a little of it, but that's mostly just because American politics is such a shitstorm. Yeah. And, uh, well, a shitstorm of incompetence. Because that's also kind of the other flip side of it. Is that so often we do not get the... Not even the brightest or, or even the second or third. It's just... Some with, like, moderate brain damage. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, right, politics sucks everywhere if you're listening in Europe and you're like, hey, man, our politics, our politicians aren't smart people either. I mean, yeah, I believe you, but the yeah, one but, thing... But do you have one that uh, was talking about if he wants to be a vampire or a werewolf <laughs> and, and just miss out on winning his election? Yeah. What was that uh, French guy's name? Macron or something like that. He was kind of like that, but he lost his election, I think. I hope. Jesus, I hope he did. But yeah, I mean, politics sucks everywhere, but I think the one other than like, okay, here's the three things that America is best at. Uh, mass shootings, uh, incarcerating people, and, and having and having dumbass politicians. And, and don't forget delusion about being better about everything else. Yeah. So, just I'm just going to cry myself to sleep later. So, uh, speaking of dumb politicians... Yeah, let me get back over to the topic list. Is that the next one? Yep. It is. 
Microsoft changes to Xbox consoles leave Republicans in outrage. Uh, uh, when I saw this, I thought it was satire. I thought, you know, Newsweek was putting out a, you know, a joke piece, you know, ha ha ha. Because uh, the New York Times does it occasionally, you know, their you know, satire sometimes slips through uh, and gets to more uh, of uh, news feeds than what it probably should. And I, I thought it was one of those. So, the big thing is that uh, Microsoft put out a thing where there's an option in the Xbox to do shutdown and updates when you're on renewables or when it, or set a time for it for uh, for power saving. And Ted Cruz uh, came back from <laughs> his trip and lost his shit. Saying, first they came for our gas stoves, now they're coming for our Xboxes. Right? If only that was fake. If only they, this was an Onion article, but alas, it is not. Now the woke brigade is after uh, video games in uh, all in the name of climate change, tweeted the Young Americans Foundation, a conservative youth uh, organization whose president is uh, former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker, because of course, right? Fucking Scott Walker. Yeah, of course. Um, I, This has, it, and on a serious note for, for a moment, Gaming consoles and a lot of things, computers, entertainment center, you know, peripherals and equipment have become energy vampires. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's the term used for them. Like they always go into standby mode, which sounds great. It's like, oh, it's in power saving standby mode. But you know what saves the most fucking power? Turning the goddamn thing off. And some of them, it's uh, yeah, kind of hard to turn it all the way off. Yeah. So. I have so, for years had my stuff plugged into uh, just a power strip. And whenever I'm not using it, I flip the power strip off. So the, uh, the, here's the big thing that everybody's losing their shit over. The company included a feature that allows the console to pick a time of the night for maintenance and updates to use the most renewable energy from the electrical grid and a shutdown setting that could be that can replace the sleep mode, which will save uh, 20 times the energy. That's it. That's the whole thing that this uh, uh, blow up is about. Tons of products do this too. Like, this isn't a new thing. Um, aside from like the the update thing, um, which you, I mean, you can do for honestly most electronic products that require an update. But think about you know dishwashers and washing machines and dryers and stuff. For decades now, they have had delay wash features so that you can set them. And either they just have a pre-built timer or, you know, you can set a timer so that they run in the middle of the night when energy prices are cheaper because there's less demand. Like that type of thing has existed I mean, people, for, yes. forever. Yeah, some people have it uh, a variable rate. I don't have it where I live, but, uh, yeah, doing off-peak hours on a heavy draw device like that is a very... A good feature for somebody that has that option. Yeah. And throwing a, a hissy fit over literally nothing. That This is, this is uh, Microsoft's option here 
to uh, have a uh, essentially a deep sleep mode from the sounds of it, as well as being able to uh, do updates in the middle of the night. This does more than just you know some of the greenwashing that uh, other companies do. They're actually making an effort. So there is that. And it's just he's he's drawing an analogy or uh, yeah drawing a, a combination of this with the gas stoves. And the gas stove thing was also bullshit. Did you uh, read that at all? I did not. Okay, essentially, it was a suggestion for ventilation, where if you don't have proper ventilation to the outdoors, gas stoves are a severe health risk uh, over a long period of time. Yep, that checks out. And they put in a recommendation that uh, if there's not proper ventilation, a gas stove should not be in a, a, a house. With, uh, I think it was California that uh, was wanting to ban them all together uh, in new construction. In new construction. Not coming after your gas stoves, but then Fox News jumped on it, and well, here we are, right? Yep. I don't know what the coffee thing is. I'm going to bet it's Starbucks. Because it's always Starbucks. It's always Starbucks when it's them. Don't know where it is, but pretty sure. I have a guess. But hey, at least now they can bitch about their spokes candies, right? Yep, that's right. That's right. So uh, yeah, Microsoft does something, honestly, I think uncomplicatedly good. I mean, honestly, if they didn't make such a big uh, hissy fit about it, it would have you know, gone it through the night, and I don't think most people would even doubt it was a thing. Yep. But yeah, Microsoft does something capital G good for once. And uh, conservatives lose their fucking mind. Pretty sure they lost it circa 1980. True. Fair play, but still. All right, we've got a couple of more to go um, over in our community corner. Uh, Rage, how can people send us stuff in the community corner in case well, they want to? If you was to drop by the Discord, you can find that over at VGL Podcast, and you can drop something there in the Discord. You could email us, vglpodcast at gmail.com, or you could tweet us, vglpodcast, on the Twitter. Yeah, so our first one from the community corner... Um, is Hall Effect Stick Upgrade will solve Joy-Con Drift. So, yeah, I mean, we talked vaguely about uh, Hall Effect uh, during the Stadia thing. Uh, do you know what Hall Effect is? Uh, no. I mean, from context clues, I'm guessing that they make custom kits and upgrade kits and okay. possibly repair kits for Hall controllers. Effect is a type of uh, uh, of uh, essentially way to measure a uh, position of a thumbstick or a, a analog stick. Oh, well, it's shit. Using, yeah, it's not a company. Okay. Hall Effect is the principle behind it. It's using magnets and uh, uh, sensors to be able to detect the movement. It's basically a replacement for a potentiometer. Uh, the Dreamcast actually had Hall Effect uh, thumbsticks. And since there's no physical contact 
unless something happens to those magnets, uh, through like, you know, the way magnets can lose magnetism, a uh, sharp hit or, you know, just electromagnetism, uh, there's going to be no breakdown of the uh, actual mechanics uh, outside of just, you know, what you would have on a thumbstick anyway, but that's not going to be as bad as the Joy-Cons. So, the thumbsticks that they're selling over on, I, I think I fix it now, uh, with the Hall Effect uh, sensors in them, will not drift. Or won't develop drift over time, I should say. Because there's actually no physical contact between the two sensors. It's using... Ah. It's using two uh, magnets and some uh, sensors to be able to detect where the actual thumbstick is. Why aren't all joysticks made like this? Money. Yeah, of course. Uh, because it is like a extra nickel. Right. And also, and... Uh, also there, there's kind of the conspiracy thought of it, is that if you have a joystick that breaks down after so many years... Uh, they uh, make more money selling the replacement than they would, you know, uh, right? Yeah. I mean, of course they would. I don't really think that's too much of a conspiracy theory. I mean, all the major consoles these days use essentially the same thumb pad or the th- same thumbstick assembly with uh, some minor modifications. The uh, PlayStation 1 is soldered in, while the Joy-Cons actually have like a ribbon cable that connects in. Uh, so, but the actual assembly itself is essentially the same. So, you're going to see drift on all the consoles pretty, pretty much no matter what. It does seem like the Joy-Con ones is a little bit more shoddy. Uh, they're, uh, from some of the breakdown, uh, teardown videos I've seen, uh, the actual potentiometer that's inside the uh, thumbstick, uh, it loses its uh, conductivity a little bit too quickly, and that is what causing uh, the drift. And uh, the original, like, fix for it was to jam up, like, a piece of paper to put more pressure on it, which kind of uh, temporarily fixed it because it made it so that it was pushing harder on that contact, so where it had worn away, it would, uh, you know, uh, basically break through what uh, debris is in that potentiometer. And I'm probably using the wrong term on potentiometer, but you know what I mean, you know. Uh, a uh, device that uh, is able to detect uh, the location of a an electrode on a track based on the amount of vol- voltage uh, between it and a baseline for a neutral position. Yes. I mean, that. yeah. I mean, that's how, you know, that's how a potentiometer works. Good yeah, job. I wasn't sure if it, it, it it's actually technically a potentiometer. I know yeah. that, I, I mean, I, you know, I can't speak to these, these tiny joysticks. I honestly assume it is. But I know that when I had to tear down my joystick for my HOTAS and repair it, that's mm. what it was. The potentiometer was not conducting correctly because it had gotten dirty. So I had to clean it. Yeah, my joystick, it actually, uh, the potentiometer was just uh, fried in it, and I could not find a replacement to even attempt it, so I just tossed it. But yeah, uh, the Hall Effect is 
just using magnets and uh, uh, detecting the, uh, essentially the current from the magnet between two sensors. Or in the, in the case of uh, the thumbstick replacements, three sensors because it's two axes. Yeah. And yeah, it's like an extra five bucks on the consumer end, so, uh, something like that. So it, uh, uh, the review I saw on one person uh, doing the replacement, uh, they did say that the thumbstick feels a little more creaky, but that could just be the break-in period for a you know, completely new thumbstick. But uh, after doing a recalibration of the thumbstick through the console, uh, it felt just as uh, responsive as the old physical sensor uh, 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 thumbstick. So well worth the upgrade if you're completely out of warranty or you don't want to wait like two weeks for uh, Nintendo to maybe get around to it. Assuming yeah. that they're even still offering that service because that's kind of the other thing. Honestly, I'm glad I learned this. I'm I'm probably going to be in the market for a new uh, flight stick this year. Um, mine is five years old at this point, and um, it's you know I've had to tear it down once to clean and repair it, and it's starting to have issues again. I mean, yeah, you know, I'm not sure if they would have Hall Effect sensors for it, but you could always look into it. They are more expensive on the outset, but yeah, you, know, you in theory wouldn't need another one. Yeah, I don't think that I'm going to repair this one. I think I'm going to essentially upgrade. Because I'm using the Hotest that I have is by Thrustmaster. It's not like cheap garbage, but it's also not high quality. It's kind of in that middle of the road tier. And I do want to have something that's very nice that will last me a very long time with minimal maintenance and repairs. Now let's just see. Hold up. Uh, fact, flight stick. Uh... Looks like the T16000M from Thrustmaster has has them. Uh, the Okay. So I have the old version of that joystick, which has uh, potentiometers in it. Well, it looks like uh, it still has a potentiometer on the twist action. Yep, and that's where mine has fallen apart, is on the twisting, the, the, uh, the yaw axis. So it's possible that mine has... Uh, magnets for the other two axes. Maybe. Uh, they also are called uh, contact uh, sensors. So uh, another way to look at it if you, they don't say Hall Effect. Gotcha. Yeah, that's pretty neat. Learned something new today. Yeah, and this is actually old technology. Like I said, the Dreamcast used it. It just is more expensive up front and yeah. Why do that? Whatever, you know, you could possibly sell another controller down the line. Kind of uh, negates that whole, you know, going to sleep mode uh, and only updating whatever it's only renewable energy, right? Yeah, well, you win some, you lose some. And then you have a garbage patch the size of Texas in uh, the Pacific Ocean. So, our last one soldiers use some Metal Gear solid tactics to defeat a military robot. It's called. The box. <laughs> I'm, I'm pulling uh, this one up right now. Come on, get there. There we go. So basically, from what I understand, the military robot was looking for humans, it, you know, human shapes, and it wasn't looking for motion. So a cardboard box 
defeated it. <laughs> oh. Looks like we need to do some more capture things. Got to got to teach these robots to be better, right? It's like, right, where's the human in this? Not the cardboard box. Yeah, uh, uh, as explained in the book, uh, the AI system was trained to spot humans walking and running, but not people doing somersaults or hiding in boxes. <laughs> so, so they also <laughs> were doing anime moves. <laughs> nice. Uh. Actually, no, the rob- the, I, I like headcanon. The robot correctly identified them as being anime protagonists, and it was like, nah, I'm not fucking with that. Uh, their hair wasn't spiky enough. I mean, that's kind of the thing, is that you know, as advanced as AI gets, there's also those edge cases that you're like, a human would easily be able to tell, but for an AI, it's, well, that's not a human. That box is just moving. That's not human. Right? <laughs> Yeah, I I 100% believe that we will have fully self-aware AI one day that has, you know, air quotes, human level intelligence. But I still think we're much farther away from that than people realize because of stuff like this. Like this very clearly points out like, oh, AI are just computer programs. They're just fancy computer programs. And if you go outside of whatever their programming parameters are, you can beat them with shit like a cardboard box. And doing, you know, anime protagonist moves. Yeah, somersaults. <laughs> well, it is funny, though. Guy, I met that one. It is funny indeed. But yeah, poor little robot guys. I, for one, welcome our new robot overlords. I, I well, promise. You better, I, because, you better because you won't be able to pull off a somersault. I know I can't. But I can hide in a cardboard box. I won't, though. I promise. Wink. So that is us done on the topics list as we have a good laugh at the cardboard box. And obviously it's way, way, way too late to even think about discovery cues. So uh, if you want to contact us, uh, vtlpodcast at com, right? (laughs) Indeed. Yeah. Hey, Rage, why don't you uh, hit hit them with them socials? Oh, I've been Caffeine Rage. Maybe you'll catch me tweeting again someday over at Gaming OCR, or if you used to be my friend over at Steam, Caffeine Rage. And you've been? I have been Jared. You can find me over on Twitter at JMA4707. I was tweeting about some buff girl shit. Um, There was a conversation on Twitter the other day about buff sword lesbians chopping wood with their claymores, and I was there for that. Um, I, I spend a lot of time on buff girl Twitter. But other than that, if you want to see me uh, about twice a month um, running a Vampire the Masquerade game over on twitch.tv slash runicarts, get streamed usually on Wednesdays, usually at around 8 p.m. Eastern time. Um, Otherwise, you can be my friend on Discord. You can be my friend on Steam. Both of those usernames are jarthur4707. That's that's my things. Woo! So, I have your podcast at gmail.com with your letters, voicemails, game-related topics. Tweet us, VGL Podcast. Uh, or if you wish to try out the Discord, it's still over at vglpodcast.podbean.com. And if you wish to spread the love, you can find us on your podcatcher of choice. Our lovely, lovely patrons have made this madness possible. You can find out more at patreon.com slash Podcast. Our intro and outro music, it's back it's better on the ground, right? 
It is. It, it's not random uh, Chicago bot shit. No random Chicago bot shit this week. Probably. Ooh. No, just our usual random shit. You find his uh, random shit over at uh, incomputech.com from Kevin McLeod and. As always, as his lovely music starts to roll across my voice. Bye bye now. See ya.